Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. The Gnostic Gospels are 52 texts discovered in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. They include secret Gospels, poems and myths attributing to Jesus' sayings and beliefs, which are very different from the New Testament of mainstream Christianity. These Gospels are not part of the traditional biblical canon and were written by various early Christian groups known as Gnostics. Unlike the Gospels found in the New Testament, the Gnostic Gospels present a different perspective on the teachings of Jesus and the nature of spirituality. They emphasize the importance of knowledge, or gnosis, for salvation, and describe a complex cosmology that includes concepts like divine sparks, hidden realms, and the separation of the spiritual and material worlds. 
The Gnostic Gospels include works such as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Philip, among others. They provide insights into the diverse beliefs and practices of early Christianity, but their interpretation and significance remains much of a mystery and the subject of scholarly debate until this day. Conspiracy theories surrounding the Gnostic Gospels are relatively rare compared to other conspiracy theories. However, a few speculative ideas have emerged over time. Some conspiracy theories claim that the Gnostic Gospels were intentionally suppressed by early Christian leaders and the Catholic Church to maintain control over the religious narrative. Proponents of this theory argue that the Gnostic Gospels represent a more egalitarian and mystical form of Christianity, which threatened the hierarchical structure of the Church. Gnostic teachings often emphasize the concept of hidden or secret occult knowledge, which they call gnosis, that leads to spiritual enlightenment and salvation. Some conspiracy theories suggest that the Catholic Church deliberately concealed the secret knowledge contained within the Gnostic Gospels to control the masses and maintain power. However, Mainstream Christianity, including the Catholic Church, focuses on the belief in salvation through faith in Jesus Christ rather than exclusive, hidden knowledge alluded to in the Gnostic Gospels. The Gnostic Gospels exhibit a complex blend of influences, including Jewish, Greek, and Hellenistic philosophies, as well as other strands of early Christian thought. Many will say that the Catholic Church was quote-unquote scared of the Gnostic Gospels getting out. However, the claim that the Catholic Church was scared of certain aspects of the Gnostic Gospels and actively sought to suppress them is somewhat of an oversimplification. The decision to exclude the Gnostic Gospels from the biblical canon was not primarily driven by fear, but rather based upon a variety of factors, including theological considerations, historical context, and the establishment of doctrinal consistency. However, there are a few elements within the Gnostic Gospels that were in tension with the developing Orthodox Christian beliefs of their time which also may have meant that the church would more want to prohibit them from being available to the mainstream public. Here are a few aspects that may have contributed to the church's reservations toward the Gnostic Gospels. First, the Gnostic Gospels present a different understanding of Jesus and his teachings compared to the canonical Gospels. They often emphasize a dualistic worldview regarding the material world as inherently flawed 
and the spiritual realm as the source of salvation. Such perspectives conflicted with the church's teachings on the incarnation and the goodness of creation. The Gnostic Gospels also contain diverse and sometimes contradictory views on matters of salvation and the nature of the divine. Some Gnostic texts challenge the hierarchical structure and authority of the institutional church. They promote individual spiritual enlightenment and the idea that salvation can be attained through secret knowledge or gnosis rather than through the church's sacraments or clergy. This diverged from the church's understanding of its role as the custodian of truth and the dispenser of sacraments. The Gnostic Gospels incorporate intricate cosmological and mythological frameworks. They present complex systems of divine emanations, aeons, and spiritual beings that differ from the more straightforward narratives found in the canonical Gospels of the mainstream church. These cosmological elements could have been perceived as obscure and challenging for widespread understanding and acceptance. The Gnostic Gospels often contain diverse and contradictory teachings, reflecting the plurality of Gnostic groups and their individual beliefs. These inconsistencies posed challenges to establishing doctrinal coherence and unity within the early Christian community. The church's main objective was to seek theological consistency and control by selecting and canonizing texts that aligned only with its core teachings. It's worth noting that the exclusion of the Gnostic Gospels from biblical canon was not solely a reaction to a fear or suppression per se, the process of canonization did involve careful evaluation of numerous texts based upon a variety of factors. However, it's still interesting and illuminating to explore the Gnostic Gospels and note that it may benefit powers that be to keep these findings and discoveries esoteric and occult hidden in plain sight but still hidden today's reading is from the gnostic gospels by elaine pagels published by vintage books in new york in 1979 In December 1945, an Arab peasant made an astonishing archaeological discovery in Upper Egypt. Rumors obscured the circumstances of this find, perhaps because the discovery was accidental and its sale on the black market was illegal. For years, even the identity of the discoverer remained unknown. One rumor held that he was a blood avenger, Another, that he had made the find near the town of Nag Hammadi at the Jabal al-Tarif, a mountain honeycombed with more than 150 caves. Originally natural, 
Some of these caves were cut and painted and used as grave sites as early as the 6th dynasty, some 4,300 years ago. 30 years later, the discoverer himself, Muhammad Ali al-Saman, told what happened. Shortly before he and his brothers avenged their father's murder in a blood feud, they had saddled their camels and gone out to the Jabal to dig for Sabah, a soft soil they used to fertilize their crops. Digging around a massive boulder, they hit a red earthenware jar, almost a meter high. Muhammad Ali hesitated to break the jar, considering that a jinn or spirit might live inside. But realizing that it might also contain gold, he raised his mattock, smashed the jar, and discovered inside 13 papyrus books bound in leather. Returning to his home in Al-Qasar, Muhammad Ali dumped the books and loose papyrus leaves on the straw piled on the ground next to the oven. Muhammad's mother, Omamad, admits that she burned much of the papyrus in the oven along with the straw she used to kindle the fire. A few weeks later, as Muhammad Ali tells it, he and his brothers avenged their father's death by murdering Ahmed Ismail. Their mother had warned her sons to keep their mattocks sharp. When they learned that their father's enemy was nearby, the brothers seized the opportunity, hacked off his limbs, ripped out his heart and devoured it among them as the ultimate act of blood revenge. Fearing that the police investigating the murder would search his house and discover the books, Muhammad Ali asked the priest, Al-Kumus, to keep one or more for him. During the time that Muhammad Ali and his brothers were being interrogated for murder, Raghib, a local history teacher, had seen one of the books and suspected that it had value. Having received one from Al-Kamuz, Raghib sent it to a friend in Cairo to find out what it was worth. Sold on the black market through antiquities dealers in Cairo, the manuscript soon attracted the attention of officials of the Egyptian government. Through circumstances of high drama, as we shall see, they bought one and confiscated ten and a half of the thirteen leather-bound books called codices and deposited them in the Coptic Museum in Cairo. But a large part of the thirteenth codex, containing five extraordinary texts, was smuggled out of Egypt and offered for sale in America. Word of this codex soon reached Professor Gillis Quispel, distinguished historian of religion, at Utrecht in the Netherlands. Excited by the discovery, Quispel urged the Jung Foundation in Zurich to buy the Codex. But discovering, when he succeeded, that some pages were missing, he flew to Egypt in the spring of 1955 to try to find them in the Coptic Museum. Arriving in Cairo, he went once to the Coptic Museum 
borrowed photographs of some of the texts and hurried back to his hotel to attempt to decipher them. Tracing out his first line, Quispel was startled, then incredulous to read. These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke and which the twin Judas Thomas wrote down. Quispel knew that his colleague H.C. Pugh, using notes from another French scholar, Jean Dorès, had identified the opening lines with fragments of a Greek gospel of Thomas, which was discovered in the 1890s. But the discovery of the whole text raised new questions. Did Jesus have a twin brother, as this text implies? Could the text be an authentic record of Jesus' sayings? According to its title, it contained the gospel according to Thomas, yet unlike the gospels of the New Testament, this text identified itself as a secret gospel. Quispel also discovered that it contained many sayings known from the New Testament, but these sayings, placed in unfamiliar contexts, suggested other dimensions of meaning. Other passages Quispel found differed entirely from any known Christian tradition. The quote, living Jesus, for example, speaks in sayings as cryptic and compelling as Zen koans. Jesus said, if you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What Quispel held in his hand, the Gospel of Thomas, was only one of the 52 texts discovered at Nag Hammadi, and it is one that I'll be reading in full on the next episode of the podcast. Bound into the same volume with it is the Gospel of Philip, which attributes to Jesus acts and sayings quite different from those in the New Testament. The companion of the Savior is Mary Magdalene, but Christ loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended. They said to him, why do you love her more than all of us? The Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you as I love her? Other sayings in this collection criticize common Christian beliefs, such as the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection, as naive misunderstandings. Bound together with these Gospels is the Apocryphon, literally secret book of John, which opens with an offer to reveal, quote, the mysteries and the things hidden in silence, which Jesus taught to his disciple John. Muhammad Ali later admitted that some of the texts were lost, burned up, or thrown away. But what remains is astonishing. Some 52 texts from the early centuries of the Christian era including a collection of early Christian Gospels previously unknown. Besides the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip, the find included the Gospel of Truth, 
and the Gospel to the Egyptians, which identifies itself as the sacred book of the great invisible spirit. Another group of texts consists of writings attributed to Jesus' followers, such as the secret book of James, the Apocalypse of Paul, the letter of Peter to Philip, and the Apocalypse of Peter. What Muhammad Ali discovered at Nakamadi soon became clear were Coptic translations made about 1,500 years ago of still more ancient manuscripts. The originals themselves had been written in Greek, the language of the New Testament, as Dores, Puch, and Quispel had recognized Part of one of them had been discovered by archaeologists about 50 years earlier when they found a few fragments of the original Greek version of the Gospel of Thomas. About the dating of the manuscripts themselves, there is little debate. Examination of the datable papyrus used to thicken the leather bindings and of the Coptic script placed them around 350 to 400 AD. But scholars sharply disagree about the dating of the original texts. Scholars investigating the Nag Hammadi find discovered that some of the texts tell the origin of the human race in terms very different from the usual reading of Genesis, the testimony of truth. For example, tells the story of the Garden of Eden from the viewpoint of the serpent here, the serpent, long known to appear in Gnostic literature as the principle of divine wisdom, convinces Adam and Eve to partake of knowledge while the Lord threatens them with death, trying jealously to prevent them from attaining knowledge and expelling them from paradise when they achieve it. Another text, mysteriously titled The Thunder, Perfect Mind, offers an extraordinary poem spoken in the voice of a feminine divine power. It says, For I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the barren one, and many are her sons. I am the silence that is incomprehensible. I am the utterance of my name. These diverse texts range then from secret gospels, poems, and quasi-philosophic descriptions of the origin of the universe to myths, magic, and instructions for mystical practice. Why were these texts buried? And why have they remained virtually unknown for 2,000 years? Their suppression as banned documents and their burial on the cliff at Nagamadi, it turns out, were both part of a struggle critical for the formation of early Christianity. 
the Nagamadi texts and others like them, which circulated at the beginning of the Christian era, were denounced as heresy by Orthodox Christians in the middle of the second century. We have long known that many early followers of Christ were condemned by other Christians as heretics, but nearly all we knew about them came from what their opponents wrote attacking them. Bishop Irenaeus, who supervised the church in Lyons in 180 AD, wrote five volumes entitled the destruction and overthrow of falsely so-called knowledge, which began with his promise to set forth the views of those who are now teaching heresy, to show how absurd and inconsistent with the truth are their statements. I do this so that you may urge all those with whom you are connected to avoid such an abyss of madness and blasphemy against Christ. He denounces as especially full of blasphemy a famous gospel called the Gospel of Truth. Is Irenaeus referring to the same Gospel of Truth discovered at Nag Hammadi that Quispel and his collaborators, who first published the Gospel of Truth, argued that he is? One of their critics maintains that the opening line, which begins, the gospel of truth, is not a title. But Irenaeus does use the same source as at least one of the texts discovered at Nagamadi, the Apocryphon, or secret book of John, as ammunition for his own attack on such heresy. Fifty years later, Hippolytus, a teacher in Rome, wrote another massive refutation of all heresies to, quote, expose and refute the wicked blasphemy of the heretics. This campaign against heresy involved an involuntary admission of its persuasive power, yet the bishops prevailed. By the time the Emperor Constantine's conversion when Christianity became an officially approved religion in the 4th century. Christian bishops, previously victimized by the police, now commanded them. Possession of books, denounced as heretical, was made a criminal offense by the church. Copies of such books were burned and destroyed. But... In Upper Egypt, someone, possibly a monk from a nearby monastery of St. Pachomius, took the banned books and hid them from destruction in a jar where they remained buried for almost 1,600 years. But those who wrote and circulated these texts did not regard themselves as heretics, most of the writings use Christian terminology, unmistakable related to a Jewish heritage. Many claim to offer traditions about Jesus that are secret or hidden from the many, 
who constitute what, in the second century, came to be called the Catholic Church. These early Christians are now called Gnostics, from the Greek word gnosis, usually translated as knowledge. For those who claim to know nothing about ultimate reality are called agnostic, literally not knowing. The person who does claim to know such things is called gnostic, knowing. But gnosis is not primarily rational knowledge. The Greek language distinguishes between scientific or reflective knowledge he knows mathematics, and knowing through observation or experience, he knows me, which is gnosis. As the Gnostics use the term, we could translate it as insight, for gnosis involves an intuitive process of knowing oneself, and to know oneself, they claimed, is to know human nature and human destiny. According to the Gnostic teacher Theodotus, writing in Asia Minor in the years 140 to 160, the Gnostic is one, has come to understand who we were, what we have become, where we were, whither we are hastening, from what we are being released, what birth is, and what is rebirth. Yet to know oneself, at the deepest level, is simultaneously to know God. This is the secret of Gnosis. Another Gnostic teacher, Monoimus, says, Abandon the search for God and the creation and other matters of a similar sort. Look for him by taking yourself as the starting point. Learn who it is within you who makes everything his own and says, my God, my mind, my thought, my soul, my body. Learn the sources of sorrow, joy, love, hate. If you carefully investigate these matters, you will find him in yourself. What Muhammad Ali discovered at Nag Hammadi is, apparently, a library of writings, almost all of them Gnostic. Although they claim to offer secret teaching, many of these texts refer to the scriptures of the Old Testament and others to the letters of Paul and the New Testament Gospels. Many of them include the same dramatic personae as the New Testament, Jesus and all his disciples, and yet the differences are striking. Orthodox Jews and Christians insist that a chasm separates humanity from its creator. God is wholly other. But some of the Gnostics who wrote these Gospels contradict this. Self-knowledge is knowledge of God. The self and the divine are identical. Second, the living Jesus of these texts speaks of illusion and enlightenment, not of sin and repentance. 
like the Jesus of the New Testament. Instead of coming to save us from sin, Jesus or Yeshua comes as a guide who opens access to spiritual understanding. But when the disciple attains enlightenment, Jesus no longer serves as his spiritual master. The two have become equal, even identical. Third, Orthodox Christians believe that Jesus is Lord and Son of God in a unique way. He remains forever distinct from the rest of humanity whom he came to save. Yet the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas relates that as soon as Thomas recognizes him, Jesus says to Thomas that they have both received their being from the same source. In the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, Jesus says, I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become drunk from the bubbling stream which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become as I am. I myself shall become he, and the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Does not such a teaching, the identity of the human and the divine, the concern with illusion and enlightenment, the founder who is presented not as Lord, but as spiritual guide sound more Eastern than Western. Some scholars have suggested that if the names were changed, the living Buddha appropriately could say what the Gospel of Thomas attributes to the living Jesus. Could Hindu or Buddhist tradition have influenced Gnosticism? The British scholar of Buddhism, Edward Conzi, suggests that it had. He points out that Buddhists were in contact with the Thomas Christians, that is, Christians who knew and used such writings as the Gospel of Thomas in South India. Trade routes between the Greco-Roman world and the Far East were opening up at the time when Gnosticism flourished in around 80 to 200 AD. For generations, Buddhist missionaries who had been proselytizing in Alexandria. We note, too, that Hippolytus, who was a Greek-speaking Christian in Rome around the year 225 AD, knows of the Indian Brahmins and includes their tradition among the sources of heresy. He wrote, There is among the Indians a heresy of those who philosophize among the Brahmins, who live a self-sufficient life, abstaining from eating living creatures and all cooked food. They say that God is light, not like the light one sees, nor like the sun nor fire, but to them God is discourse, not that which finds expression in articulate sounds, but that of knowledge or gnosis, through which the secret mysteries of nature are perceived by the wise. Could the title of the Gospel of Thomas, named for the disciple who tradition tells us went to India, suggest the influence of Indian tradition? These hints indicate the possibility, yet our evidence is not conclusive. 
Since parallel traditions may emerge in different cultures at different times, such ideas could have developed in both places independently. What we call Eastern and Western religions and tend to regard as separate streams were not clearly differentiated 2,000 years ago. Research on the Nagamadi texts is only beginning. We look forward to the work of scholars who can study these traditions comparatively to discover whether they can, in fact, be traced to Indian sources. Even so, ideas that we associate with Eastern religions emerged in the first century through the Gnostic movement in the West, but they were suppressed and condemned by polemicists like Arrhenius. Yet those who called Gnosticism heresy were adopting, conscious or not, the viewpoint that the group of Christians who called themselves Orthodox Christians. A heretic may be anyone whose outlook someone else dislikes or denounces. According to tradition, a heretic is one who deviates from the true faith. But what defines that true faith? Who calls it that? And for what reasons? We find this problem familiar in our own experience. The term Christianity, especially since the Reformation, has covered an astonishing range of groups. Those claiming to represent true Christianity in the 20th century can range from Catholic Cardinal in the Vatican to an African Methodist Episcopal preacher initiating revival in Detroit, a Mormon missionary in Thailand, or the member of a village church on the coast of Greece. Yet Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox agree that such diversity is a recent and deplorable development. According to Christian legend, the early church was different. Christians of every persuasion look back to the primitive church to find a simpler, purer form of Christian faith. In the apostles' time, all members of the Christian community shared their money and property. They all believed the same teaching. They all worshipped together. They all revered the authority of the apostles. It was only after that golden age that conflict, then heresy, emerged. So says the author of the Acts of the Apostles, who identifies himself as the first historian of Christianity. But the discoveries at Nakamadi have upset this picture. If we admit that some of these 52 texts represents early forms of Christian teaching, we may have to recognize that early Christianity is far more diverse than nearly anyone expected before the Nakamadi discoveries. Contemporary Christianity, diverse and complex as we find it, actually may show more unanimity than the Christian churches of the first and second centuries. For nearly all Christians since that time, Catholics, Protestants, or Orthodox have all shared three basic premises. First, they accept the canon of the New Testament. Second, they confess the apostolic creed. And third, they affirm specific forms of church institution. But every one of these, the canon of scripture, the creed, 
and the institutional structure of the church emerged in its present form only toward the end of the second century. Before that time, as Arrhenius and others attest, numerous gospels circulated among various Christian groups ranging from those of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to such writings as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, and the Gospel of Truth, as well as many other secret teachings, myths, and poems attributed to Jesus or his disciples. Some of these, apparently, were discovered at Nag Hammadi. Many others are lost to us. Those who identified themselves as Christians entertained many and radically differing religious beliefs and practices, and the communities scattered throughout the known world organized themselves in ways that differed widely from one group to another. Yet by AD 200, the situation had changed. Christianity had become an institution headed by a three-rank hierarchy of bishops, priests, and deacons who understood themselves to be the guardians of the only true faith. The majority of churches, among which the Church of Rome took a leading role, rejected all other viewpoints as heresy, deploring the diversity of the earlier movement Bishop Irenaeus and his followers insisted that there could only be one church, and outside of that church, he declared, there is no salvation. Members of this church alone are orthodox, literally meaning straight-thinking Christians. And he claimed, this church must be Catholic, that is, universal. Whoever challenged that consensus, arguing instead, for other forms of Christian teaching, was declared to be a heretic and expelled. When the Orthodox gained military support, sometime after the Emperor Constantine became Christian in the 4th century, the penalty for heresy escalated. This marks the end of our exploration of the Gnostic Gospels. On the next episode, we will explore the words of the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is a collection of 114 sayings, or logia, attributed to Yeshua, also known as Jesus. It's written in Coptic, an Egyptian language, but scholars believe it was originally composed in Greek. The content of the Gospel of Thomas is distinct from the traditional Biblical Gospels. It focuses completely on the idea of inner spiritual knowledge or gnosis as the path to salvation. I want to thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment, discussion, and consciousness expansion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators, and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social media and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are created. 
In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die. Ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life, what is it but a dream? Night-night, bitch.